0: Have you ever encountered people who are, they've read the Bible and then they come and they know that you're a Christ follower and they say something kind of like, you know, I don't know how you can believe all that stuff in the Bible. Don't you have to be a little bit naive to really believe those stories because they're not really true, are they? And and they're more like a myth or a terry, or a fairy tale. You just, you just can't take it at what it says. It's just kind of nice stuff, but you really just can't believe what it has to say. While we were uh, back in our um, area that we moved from, I met with a young guy, and he, he and his mom and siblings uh, grew up in the church. He, he did. He grew up in the church while I was there. I saw him from when he was a little kid. Till he was going into high school, and you know it was interesting because his his conversation was with me was that he just had a real hard time with church because it seemed like all the the things out of the Bible were like vague ideas that they they were concepts that you really couldn 't wrap your mind around, and they really didn 't make sense for how you really lived life. I was a little taken back by that as a a kid whose mom uh, really loves Jesus. But it seems to me that there's two kinds of people who have that kind of a problem. They're the ones who are outside the community of faith, and they're always looking for the flaws in the gospel. They're always looking for something that they're going to say, this is how, you know, this contradicts itself. They're, they're, They're not willing to give in to the word of God to bring clarity to complicated issues in their life. They're not wanting to commit to trusting God for what he has in store for them. They, they, they have all kinds of excuses and they keep everything at an arm's length. Then you have the other group of people who are inside the community of faith and what they're doing is they're, they're justifying their lack of obeying God, of their obedience to God. They make up excuses why what the Bible says doesn't fit with who they are. They they don't want to do what the Bible says. They don't like what it says. And what they really want to do is what the current culture climate is saying that they should do, what the right thing is to do. Now, when there's a a wavering away from the infallibility of, of God's word, what happens is there comes within the church a real mess because people are starting to believe one thing over here and somebody else will believe something else over here, and none of it really lines up with what Scripture has to say. And so things become like out of control and there starts to become this whole thing of divisions within the church. There are divisions all over the United States and churches where they're just breaking up and splitting over things that are either what God has to say is true and they don't want to believe them because our, cult- our culture says that's not true. That's not what you should believe. That's not what you should think. We're in, the, in our study in the letter of 1 Corinthians, the first letter Paul wrote to Corinthians. And in the Corinthians church, there was much divisiveness as well. And one of the purposes of Paul's letter was to connect and correct the issues that led to divisiveness in the church. Paul knew that sometimes correcting those who were error is what leads to bringing healing and unity in the church. The Bible tells us that that correction and reproof is good for us. It gets us, it's kind of like hitting the reset button. We had to do that this morning. We had to hit the reset button because these speakers weren't working when we started off. I was okay cuz I can yell but the worship team was kind of like oh boy. But we hit the reset button and everything came back to where it was supposed to be. And 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 that's what we have to do. That's what the the word of God is for. One of the the factions that was in the church in Corinth and was causing all the problems was a group of people who were what we would call hyper spiritual. And and they had this this Form of faith in Christ that was like crazy. And these spiritual elitists were causing all kinds of problems throughout the church. And Paul mentions those in all of his letters. He calls them the spiritual ones. And they believed that they had a special knowledge and wisdom from God that nobody else had. They had special gifts from the Holy Spirit and special insights into death and resurrection. They had this sort of hyper-spiritual spirituality that led them to make a dualistic division between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. In other words, what they did physically had no effect on their spiritual well-being and vice versa. They were two separate things. And so when they had this kind of thought going on in the church, it infiltrated into a large portion of the church, even so much so that one of the leaders in the church was actually having sexual relationships with his mother-in-law. And the church was going, yeah, that's all right, it's okay, you go ahead and do that. Because, hey, what you do in your body doesn't affect what you think or how you are spiritually. And so it's kind of in that idea that we have to understand what God is calling us to. In the context of this chapter, particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's trying to show the church where true wisdom comes from, how people learn about the things of God. And and Paul talks about two types of people in the passage we're going to look at today. And one is called the natural person, and the other is called the spiritual person. It seems to uh, best to see that Paul's talking about people and how they learn spiritual things. The way that we learn spiritual things is because... We are have a spirit. Whether you're regenerated or not, you have a spirit. And your spirit is either alive in Christ or it's dead. And we learn through our spirit. Some people learn through the flesh or the body. Those are people of the natural order of things. They're not spiritually inclined. They don't have that distinction in their mind. And it all comes to understanding how we function as people. Because we are all made up of, of three parts. You're made up of your body. That's kind of the vehicle in which you get around in. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes you have a stroke and it doesn't work so well. You, you have a spirit. And you are either spiritually alive or you are spiritually dead. And you have a soul. Now, I'm just going to throw a little side note in. That's why when God told us it's okay to to kill animals and to eat their flesh because a steak is good is because they don't have a soul. An animal, uh, sorry to bust the bubble of some of you that think your doggies going to heaven. Ain't going to happen. No soul. Only those souls get to go to heaven. God might have a dog in heaven for you. I don't know. But we have a soul. And that, that soul is the seat of our intellectual capacity. It's where our emotions comes from. It's where we make decisions of, of right and wrong. It's all those, those things that make us uniquely who we are. It's through our soul. And, and it has to do with memory and reason. And, and when a person operates through their flesh, they are operating in the natural man or in what I would call a worldly mindedness. They don't think of spiritual things. But when you operate as a person who is connected spiritually, you operate spiritually minded. You have the mind that thinks in spiritual terms. Only the Bible contains the writings taught not only by human wisdom, but by the Spirit of God only the Bible reveals what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. God's manual of operation is unique because it reveals the things of the Spirit, things from God that man can't find out on his own, things that are very often foreign to the way that we think. And therein lies the great problem. We have a God who is spiritual... And people don't think in spiritual terms because they're not connected spiritually with God. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today, how God works by his Spirit to help us understand spiritually. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 2. And we're looking at verses 14 through 16. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up here on the screen. Here's what it says. The natural man, person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as so as to instruct him? But We have the mind of Christ. The problem is this. We have this, what is called a good manual of operation. But it can't be understood fully by ordinary people. If the Bible reveals the things of God and the natural man is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, how can this book ever be able to win anyone over to God's side? That's a question we have to ponder because Paul clearly says here that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. But what does he mean by natural man and what are the things of God? Well, the word for natural man used in the New Testament is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's to refer to people, and namely found in Jude 19. Now, that's not Jude chapter 19. Jude only has one chapter. So it's verse 19. And it says this. These are the ones who split churches, thinking only of themselves. There's nothing to them, no sign of the Spirit. In other words, these, these people are defined as though those people who do not have God's Spirit. They are simply ordinary people whose hearts and minds have not been touched by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. The opposite of the natural man is the spiritual man, a, a person whose mind and heart are renewed by the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 2 um, verse 12 confirms this. It says, "We now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In verse 14, it says the natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. In verse 12, it says the spiritual person understands these things. And Paul's the one that wrote this book and he understands spiritual things because he has been empowered and has the Holy Spirit indwelling in him to help him understand what spiritual things really are. One of the things we need to deal with first as we walk through this little passage together is who is a natural man? Now, many churches and evangelists or evangelical preachers and teachers have looked at this passage and and many of them have said that this is what they would call the carnal Christian. In other words, someone who has claimed to be following Christ but is living a life of sin. But that's not the indication that Paul gives to us in in verse 14. The indication that Paul gives to us is that, that the natural man is someone who has never come into relationship with Christ. They're opposed to all the things of God. They don't want to step into God's word. They have no faith in Jesus because all of it to them is just kind of like stupidity. Paul speaks through the first few verse or chapters of this book, of, of this letter, uh, of, on the one hand about human wisdom and the wisdom of men and the wisdom of this age, the things of man, the spirit of the world this, and man's wisdom. But on the other hand, he speaks of the wisdom of God, the demonstration of the spirit of power and the power of God, the wisdom of God and hidden wisdom, the deep things of God, wisdom which the Holy Spirit teaches, and the things that are spiritually discerned in the mind of Christ. Those are the two kind of categories that Paul has now separated here through these first few chapters that we've been looking at. We we see that there's the natural man who is not a Christ follower... And there is the spiritual man who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The natural man is controlled by the wisdom of other fallen men, the wisdom of this age, the things of men, the spirit of this world. The natural man is often the spiritual person, but their hearts and their soul have not been regenerated by God, and so they are not spiritually alive in Christ. Secondly, what we need to take a look at is what is meant by the word accept that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The Greek word can be translated in a number of ways, which means to welcome, to take hold of, to grasp, thus to accept as true. The unbeliever does not welcome the word of God. He rejects it. He denies it. He disputes it. He does not grasp God's word. He misunderstands it, misconstrues it, and misinterprets it for his own justification or benefit. That's what people do when they read the Bible and they don't like what it says. They either throw it out or they twist it to make it sound like they 're okay, according to that and and, and that 's a fallacy that people have have bought into they 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 have substituted something else for god they 're unwilling to submit to the authority and rule of God in their life and this morning, all across this nation, there are what I would call Christians sitting in churches worshiping just like we are, who are unwilling to submit to the authority of God's word. And they wonder why their lives are a mess. Fourthly, or thirdly, we are told that the natural man views God's word as foolishness. The word translated foolishness in verse 14, is from the Greek word, is the where we get the English word moron. And and to the unbelieving mind, to the humanistic mind, the Bible is foolishness. Biblical faith is the talk of morons. Christ followers are morons. Welcome to the first church of morons. Glad you're here. I'm the head moron. But that's... That's the the thought that people have in relationship to the Word of God and people who believe it, that we're just stupid, that we've lost our minds and we don't really understand what the world is all about. We want to live in this, this little cocoon and keep ourselves away from the reality of the world. Fourthly, we're told that the natural man cannot know the things of the Spirit of God. It means that the natural man lacks even the capability to understand some of the simplest truths and fifthly we're told in verse 14 why this is true because they are spiritually discerned the truths of god are spiritually discerned it's literally because by the aid of the spirit they are learned through the process of careful study what is the sum of all of this 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us two important things about man in relation to Scripture. In his natural state of mind, the things of God are foolishness. But when the spirit is present and indwelling in the heart and the person, their life begins to make sense. Spiritual things are understood and discerned. Two different people. We were all (laughs) that first one at one point. What are the things of the Spirit of God which people can't grasp without the Spirit? The context makes it really kind of clear for us. Notice the word folly or foolishness. The things of the Spirit are folly to the natural man. Back in chapter 1, verse 18... It said that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in the same way, in verses 23 and 24, it says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the natural man can't understand is the heart of the gospel message. That's what the natural man can't get through their mind. On your own, you can read it, but you're not going to get it. It it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to bring that to our hearts and our minds so that we understand that Christ died on the cross for our sins. But the, the word of the cross is radical in its indictment on human pride. It describes the way of salvation, which according to 1 Corinthians one twenty nine has a very purpose to it. And that is this, that no human might boast in the presence of God. In other words, it's only through the Holy Spirit in which we are able to come to an understanding and the conviction of the Spirit where we wrestle with the things in our heart that God wants to deal with us, the sin that we're struggling with. And we finally come to the place where we give in and God says, it wasn't you, it was me. You didn't come to me. I called you to me. Because there's no way that anybody can stand up in front of God and boast and say, I found you. You didn't find me. God's coming like, uh, that's not true. That's not the way it is. That's not how it works. The word of the cross is a message about not just Jesus' crucifixion. It's a message about my crucifixion. It's, Like what Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What Paul's saying is that the things of the Spirit of God are folly to the natural man. And he means that the gospel of Christ crucified with all its devastating implications for the natural human pride, are simply foolishness to the natural man. A view of reality which aims to take away every ground of boasting in man and put it all in Christ crucified is foolishness to humans in their natural state apart from the Holy Spirit. So the natural man is a person without the Holy Spirit. The things of the Spirit of God refers to the word of the cross and its devastating implications to the human pride. That's the first place that God has to work. The natural person utterly utterly lacks the power to properly understand and interpret God's book because he does not have the power of spiritual perception that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Unless the author of the book has regenerated you, unless he is dwelling in you, it is impossible for you to understand God's manual for your life. It just doesn't make sense. The problem's not a lack of clear speech or the lack of intellectual power of interpretation. The problem is, is that when the simplicity of the word of the cross is clear, and the intellect of the natural man has interpreted it adequately, he regards it as foolishness. He says it, it's, it, it that doesn't work. That's not how we come to God. Yet there are other things that come from God that are only discernible by the Spirit of God being present in our lives. There are the simplistic things that, that even a child can pick up. There is a simplistic message of the cross of Christ that's being presented to thousands of people every day in this nation and around the world. And some people who are in tune to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's working in them, they say yes to the gospel of Christ. The others hear it, they recognize it, and they say, no, that's foolish. Why would anybody believe that? <clears throat> the last phrase in this verse, verse 14, confirms that, that this is the problem. They are The things that we need to know are spiritually discerned. The word for discern here is the same one translated twice in verse 15 as judged. The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. It says he cannot understand the things of the spirit because they are spiritually evaluated. But he who is spiritual evaluates all things, yet himself is evaluated by no one. The word means to assess or to appraise or to make valuable judgments about something. Now, there's a big difference between saying that the things of the spirit are uh, gibberish and saying that they are foolish. Foolishness is the assessment you make about something you have understood, but regard as ridiculous gibberish is a description of unintelligible words the problem with the natural man is not that he describes or that he describes the gospel as gibberish but that he assesses it as foolishness so what paul means in verse 14 when he says that the natural man is not able to understand is that he is not able to understand the things of the spirit as being valuable he he can see that there is meaning but he cannot connect the value to the meaning for himself. He can restate all of Paul's arguments. He can comment about the implications. And he can even simply talk about what it looks like, but he rejects it because he has no value for himself attached to it, and it just becomes religious rubbish to him. What does the Word of God mean to you? How does God's Word and what god has to say affect your life every day what this text teaches us then is that all of us by nature recoil from the truth of god we recoil from the truth of the bible and from the word of the cross when we hear the call of the gospel to submit to the crucified christ when we first heard that we decided that we didn't want to do anything about it we defended ourselves against it and said it was foolish What natural man man means when he says the gospel is foolish is that he cherishes something greater than what the gospel has or that the gospel demands that he gives up something that he's not willing to give up. That's what it means. We call advice foolish when it asks from us a higher value for a lower one. Let me help you understand this. If you ask me to jump off of a bridge with no water underneath it, and it's a long ways, I'm going to say that's foolish advice because I value my life more than your advice. And so I'm not going to jump off the bridge. If you were to have advised me when I had children not to spank my children when they disobeyed me, I would have said, and perhaps probably to myself, that that was foolish, because I value the wisdom of Proverbs and the good effects of loving discipline. But if you advise a natural man to follow Christ crucified, he will say that's foolishness because he values self-reliance and self-exaltation that he would have to give up in order to follow Christ, give up all the me stuff. When Paul in these first four chapters, we haven't gotten through all four of them. We're just actually getting through chapter two. But in the four of these, what Paul is doing, he's, he's showing that God has accomplished our redemption in such a way that every prop of human pride is knocked out from underneath us. That's what it said, why it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It goes on saying, in chapter 4, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in our own accomplishments, not in what we've been able to do. Because if you're a Christ follower, and you've done something great, particularly for the kingdom of God, it's only been by the work of the Holy Spirit in you producing that fruit. You got none of it. And all that goes to God. All that glory goes to God. So here's really the, where we need to kind of take this. Because when a natural man hears, hears that, that the, the, the wisdom comes from God and is only found in God, he says that's foolishness. But why does he say that? Not because he doesn't understand its meaning. It's because he loves the praise of men. He loves the exhilaration of accomplishing great things in reliance on himself. He loves autonomy of pulling his own strings. He loves the sense of esteem that he can get through the use of his intelligence or skill or talent or strength. The suggestion that all this should be left at the bridge when he jumps into the arms of Christ is simply ridiculous to him. In our natural condition, we cannot prefer Christ over our self-glorification. The desire... For credit is far too great for us, but Jesus said in John in the Gospel of John, "How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory of the, the, of that com- the glory, glory that comes from the only God? Let me read that again. I muffed it up real well hang on i 'll get it together. How can you believe who receive glory from men?" from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. The faith in Christ is foolishness to the natural man because the essence of the natural man is to love self, get a sense of power and pride through, through what they do. While the essence of faith in Christ is to say, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of Christ. So what hope is there then? that anyone would ever welcome the spiritual things of God and come to Christ. I mean, if it's out of their realm of ability to to step into that, how can Christ crucified be valued as the power of God and the wisdom of God and the source of infinite joy if, if they can't comprehend it? As I said, at the end of verse 14, it said that it's spiritually discerned. And in verse 15, that the spiritual man judges or evaluates all things, but he himself is not judged or evaluated by anyone. The spiritual person is the opposite of the natural person. The spiritual person has the Spirit of God. Remember in verse 12 it said, that we have received the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things given to us by God. When the Spirit of God is at work in your life, then you will discern the things the way God does. You will not regard the Word of God as folly, but the most precious, most important, imaginable word in your life. It's like air. The first and most fundamental work of God's spirit in the life of a person is to absolutely knock the stuffing out of pride and to destroy it. Because pride is what keeps us from coming to the knowledge of God. It's the thing that keeps us from understanding what who God is and so when the spirit enables us as he knocks pride out of this he enables us to see on the one hand how desperately helpless we are but on the other hand the all-sufficiency and beauty of Christ crucified but pride gets in the way when that happens we begin to see and discern things with the eyes of Christ This is what verses 15 and 16 are getting at. The Spirit enables us to discern the things with their true value. But when natural man discerns spiritual things or discerns us, it's always wrong because they're not discerning with the Spirit. They they, they come to the wrong conclusion about the Word of God and about Christ's followers Every time. Have you ever been somewhere where you've bumped into somebody and, and you just all of a sudden kind of felt this? You've never met them before in your life. You're at some event and you bump into somebody, you meet them, you exchange names, and there is immediate connection between you and that person. You're like, you know, it's like we've been brothers our whole lives, That like we were twins in the hospital and got separated. And you went to Alabama and I went to Oregon. And we got separated. And the reason why there is that strong connection is because the spirit of God that is in you is in that person. And that God's spirit connects with your spirit. And your spirit connects with the spirit of God in that person. And there becomes this whole thing of growing in love with each other. Not that kind of, you know, I love you thing. I'm not romantically in love with you, but I love you like I love all of you. That's that's what the spirit of God does in his people. That's what happens when Christ has his his place in our lives. But people who don't have that, they discern wrongly and why it says so in verse 16, because apart from the spirit, no one thinks or discerns like Jesus does. But we who possess the Spirit of Christ have the mind of Christ. We have begun to view and assess things the way that Christ does. We're not going to reject the things of the Spirit anymore. When the Word of God comes to us and it tells us to do something, even though we don't like it, we're going to do it anyway. Even though it calls for the death of self, we'll kill self because of Christ we start to come to understand what is really valuable. To have the mind of Christ is to respond to the word of God as Jesus responded to his father. Was there anything that God asked Jesus to do that he said, no, I'm not going to do that? There wasn't anything. Everything that was brought to Jesus by the father, Jesus obediently said, I will, even to dying on the cross. That was an act of obedience. He was obedient to his father to go and die on the cross. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. It isn't that you all of a sudden have this uh, spiritual enlightenment where you can just see things spiritually and and you've got this kind of like uh, hocus-pocus kind of thing going on and people are really wowed by you, that's like only what God can do. See, God has the ability to read your thoughts before you even speak them. He knows what's on your mind. He knows what's in your heart. He knows the actions of your heart. He knows all those things about us. That's what the psalmist says. He says, "Before I, when I rise in the morning, you know it when I get up. You know when I go to bed at night. You know where I walk in the day. If I go to the the highest peak, you're there with me. If I go to the lowest place on earth, you're there with me. There's no place that I can hide from you. Even you know my thoughts before I know my thoughts. You perceive them from afar. That's what the psalmist says all about God. But that's not having the mind of Christ. That's God, and you're not God. But to have the mind of Christ is to be obedient. That's the mind of Christ, is an obedient mind to the things of God and that's what he's calling us to. So what we need to do now is kind of go back to where we began on this whole talk about God's manual of operation for a Christ follower. And that operate that manual is the is this right here. It's the word. It's God's word for us. It contains truth for us and and truth for us to, to know how we're going to win against our enemy Satan. And how we come to Christ. It, it it's the truth on to deprogram our old thought patterns to train us in the strategies of of righteousness and to equip us with armor and weapons to defeat Satan and liberate his captives. But the problem is, is that we have a natural aversion to this kind of truth. Therefore, the work of the Holy Spirit is utterly indispensable as we make use of this manual. But how does the... God, the Spirit, work in us and through the Word of God. The work of the Spirit is not to tell us what the manual of operations means. That we must determine by disciplined study of the text. The Spirit inspired these writings. He, he does not short-circuit them by whispering in our ear what the meaning is. I know a lot of you wish that's what it was. But that's not the way it works. When we pray for his help, we do not pray that he will spare us from the hard work of rigorous reading and reflection. When something is hard for us to understand, we ask the spirit to help us and he will teach us through the word what the word means. That's how he does it. And that when we pray, we would ask him to make us humble enough to welcome the truth. The work of the Spirit is helping us to grasp the meaning of Christ's manual operation, is not to make us, uh, to, to make study unnecessary, but to make us radically open to receive what our study turns up, instead of twisting the text to justify our unwillingness to accept it. That's what, that's what this is all about, is, is that the Word of God becomes alive in our hearts, to where we're being obedient to the Word. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that produces obedience in our hearts to help us to understand what it means to follow Christ. There, there's, a, there's a problem going on in our churches. We don't have a lot of diligent students of Christ's manual anymore. Not a lot of people are taking time to sit down and to pore over it and to read it and to reread and to think about the hard things that are found in Scripture. There are some really difficult passages to read. Read the book of Romans. And if that doesn't blow your mind, then go read Hebrews. Because you're not Jewish, you'll have a hard time understanding the context of it. And, and and so what we've what we've uh, I gotta tease my dad a little bit, even though he's dead, because now he can't get me. I love him. He read this thing, and by the way, if you're reading this, okay, I'm making fun of you too. It's called the Daily Bread. Put your hand up. Come on, don't be bashful. If if you're reading it, you're reading it, put it up. Come on, put it up. Be proud. You know what it is. Okay, anybody here? Okay, the daily bread. All right, I teased my dad. I called it the daily crumb. He had one little verse in there, and there's a little devotional writing. Hey, I'm not saying it was bad. It's good. If that's all you can get, that's okay, because you can survive on some crumbs. But it would have this little verse at the top, and then reading through it, and then a little... It, it must have been put out by the Baptists, because the Baptists always put a poem in there somewhere. Methodists? Methodist? Okay, but there's always this little piffy little poem at the end of the thing, right? And, and you go through your day, and you, so you got what? You got, you got your daily crumb. If you want to eat deeply from the Word of God it takes more time than than reading the daily bread and i'm not saying the daily bread's bad i've got a lot of stuff crammed in my mind from the daily bread that i heard over 25 years of listening to my dad read it to us or making me read it when he thought i was sleeping so the problem is is that we check our brains at the door we just do it and I'm not just saying you guys. I do it. And I know if I check my brain at the door and I just want to sit there and, and just kind of soak it up like sun, sun rays and get it suntan, get up and, uh, yeah, I'm looking pretty good, better roll over, beast a little bit. That's not the way the Word of God enters into our lives. It's by the hard work of sitting down and reading something and rereading it and looking it over again. And then saying, like, what does that mean? And how do I get this in my head? And and then trying to find other verses that, that Jesus or whoever talked about that support that. Or going into the Old Testament. It's it, it is a full-fledged study of letting the Word of God change your life. And we wonder why people walk around still being the same people that they've always been. It's because they don't get into the Word of God because they don't value it as something that's going to absolutely transform them from who they were into who God wants them to be. Now, there's some of you sitting here today who don't like what the Bible says. I'm not kidding myself. I I I know that in this room there are some people that when you come to a certain passage, you read it and you go, I don't like what that says. I don't like how God says that. I don't think, I think God's mean. Really? God's just a big meaning. He doesn't want me to have any fun. Well, knock it off because he's talking about some important things in life. There are people I know that have read the Bible and they don't like what it has to say about forgiveness. You know what it says about forgiveness? that we are to forgive others just as we have been forgiven by God our Father. What does that mean? So when someone says, I'm never going to forgive that person, I'm going like, dude, you're in big heap of trouble. You're in deep kimchi. Because that that is bad news right there. Because is there anything that you have done that God says, I'm never going to forgive him for that? There isn't an one iota of a thing that God hasn't already forgiven you of. When, when I hear people reading about what marriage looks like, a biblical marriage looks like, I just had it at this wedding. <laughs> it was after the bride actually said the words. A couple days later, uh, she came down to her mom's house, and her mom and her both said this, I will never submit to any man. And I'm going like, well, howdy doody. Now, here's the problem, is, is that when you don't read the Word of God and you don't study the Word of God in relationship to marriage and you hear that word submit, wives, submit to your husbands as unto Christ, and you read that word submit, I'm not going to submit my husband, because what, they, what how do we translate it? I'm a doormat. I have to do everything he says. I'm his slave. I'm his servant. And he can just do whatever he wants, but this is what I have to do. And that's what submitting means. Well, sure, that's what it means if you're a moron. But the biblical definition of submission looks nothing like that. Do you want me to tell you what it is? I'm not going to. Look it up and read it for yourself. Study the Word of God and find out what biblical submission is. Oh, you know, there, there are other people that don't like what the Bible says about how you raise your children. People ask me, how did your kids turn out so well? Well, we just kind of followed what the Bible said to do. You know? Love them, beat them, and love them. (laughs) But people don't like that. They don't want to follow God's word when it comes to raising children. And they wonder why they... Their kids sitting in prison. People don't like what God has to say about money. And by the way, Jesus had a lot to say about money. The two biggest topics Jesus ever talked about, money and sex. You guys are wondering why I never talk about the stuff Jesus talks about. Talk about, Don't talk about the money, but you can talk about the other thing if you want. Okay, but we, we read it and we go like, I don't like it. We don't like the Bible telling us What we should think about and what we shouldn't think about. I want to be controlled my whole life. That's what I want to do. We make excuses why we're not going to accept what God has to say. We will find some reason why that doesn't work for me. Like somehow I'm more special than anybody else and what God's word doesn't really apply to me or it just doesn't work for me. Because I'm special. It doesn't work for me. Man, I, I'm, I, I just wonder sometimes, what does it take for God's word to really seep into the people's, into our hearts so that we're transformed by, so that we do the things that God calls us to do? I'm going to tell you this really is a really simplistic idea here. Because if, if you have the mind of Christ then you're going to obey the things of God. The opposite is true. If you're not obeying the things of God, then you do not have the mind of Christ. You're you're living like the natural man. You've attached a little sign on yourself that says Christian, or maybe Christ follower, but you come in and, and you want to hear something that makes you feel good. Sorry about that today. Didn't get any feel-good stuff for you. But... Nonetheless, the thing is, is that, that we have all these things that God says, if you do this, if you do this with your money, the results are going to be unbelievable to you. If you train your children in the Lord, they're going to be a blessing to you until you die. If you follow the, the precepts of what a marriage looks like, you're going to have a marriage that people are going to emulate. They want to know why. That's what the Word of God does for us. It helps us to think clearer. helps us to have a better perspective on life. But what do we do? When we read something we don't like from God's Word, we go to the Internet, because everything on the Internet is true, (laughs) and we look it up, and we find somebody that has some letters in front of their name, like a Ph.D. or a Dr. or M.R.P. or whatever else, and, and because they wrote this article, and it validates the way I think, and it doesn't, it contradicts what God says. So you're going to like, well, this guy's really smart. I know the Bible says I'm supposed to do this, but this guy has a Ph.D. Jesus didn't have a Ph.D. So I'm going to believe this idiot. Because that's really all he is. Because have have any of these people to try to validate the things that we don't want to do with the word of God in our lives, do have any of these people ever understood the, the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Jesus, I don't think you built people right. You should have put their noses the other way. Right? When you operate with the mind of Christ you will find that you're willing to submit to God and his word in loving obedience. It's not a burden. It's not that I'm doing this because I have to, and, and if I don't, God's going to get out the, I'm going to become his whipping boy. He's going to tie me up on some post and just whip me into obedience. That's not, if that's the God you have, if that's the God that you worship, if that's the God you trust, you've got the wrong God. That's a small G God, and he's false. Because that's not the God I love, that's not the God I worship, and that's not the God of the Bible. If you want to have the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ produces obedience to God's word. That's what the mind of Christ is. If you don't have the mind of Christ, if you're without the mind of Christ you will find yourself being spiritually feeble and lackluster. You'll have no desire for the things of God. You have no desire to read the Word of God. You have no desire to spend five minutes in prayer, which, by the way, five minutes in prayer is a very long time. Just try it. You will find yourself not wanting to hang around with other Christ followers. None of the things of God are going to make sense to you. None of the things of God that He's asking and telling you to transform your life so that you become the, the man, the woman, the child that He says you can be will never happen because you will not take the time to have the mind of Christ in obedience to all things. Amen? All right. This was really a hard week for me, I've got to be honest. My first day in the office was Friday. And um, I wanted to work on, well, not really. I have to work on my lawn. But anyway, so I worked hard at coming up with some questions for you because that's what I'm trying to do. And so here's the questions to consider. Are there areas in your life that you're unwilling to trust God for, submit to, or give up? What excuses are you using to disregard God's instruction to you how have you allowed your pride to keep you from having the mind of Christ and to stunt your spiritual growth I can't answer those three I've answered them for myself and you don't get to see my answers those are for me and Jesus only but those are things we need to ponder things we need to think about in our relationship to Christ right all right Phoebe, can you just slip those back up real quick? If you have an iPhone or an Android, it has a camera on it. And if you point it at the screen when this picture comes up, you can take a picture of the questions that are up there. That's just for those people that are in technology. There are other people like me that just kind of like handwrite stuff out. I could put it in the bulletin, but the bulletin's always printed before I come up with my questions. There's a lot of things I could do, but as I said, I am the chief moron in this place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word is carry so much weight in our lives and oftentimes we don't even recognize it. We don't step up into it. We don't obey it. We don't follow through on it. We we have great intentions of doing what you've called us to do and we never do it. And forgive us for those times that we've failed to follow through on the things you've just called us to do. You're just simply saying, please do this. And we say, okay, I will when I get around to it. Put an urgency in our hearts, God, to make your word, your um, desires urgent in our lives. That we wouldn't wait another moment. We wouldn't wait another day to respond to what you're saying to us. So we commit all this to you in the great name of Jesus. Amen.